So we're reading out of the Old Testament, book of Ecclesiastes. We've been spending the last couple of weeks walking through the book of Ecclesiastes together. And what you'll find is, the closer we get to the end, the more disjointed the little pieces of wisdom that are found in the book of Ecclesiastes come to be. Now, this, I think, hopefully will set the right kind of tone for us in the next few weeks. Here's why. We want to wrap up our time in Ecclesiastes in chapter 12 on Easter Sunday. So something that we do on a regular basis, we open the Bible, and even as like we're in a book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, we, we kind of fumble through what we find there. Sometimes it's disjointed, sometimes it doesn't seem to all work together, but we find that the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is that we find in the New Testament is found in seed form in the Old Testament. And so the embodiment of wisdom is Jesus Christ. The embodiment of God's fullest, most sufficient form of revelation is Jesus Christ. So we're going to fumble through this, walk through the text, and then at the end, we're going to stop and look to Christ as the fulfillment of it. So I would love to like wait till the end and like, I, I don't know, I'd love to like have a surprise ending, uh, but we end on Easter, the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, if you Google Easter, okay? Uh, I would, if, if that's a shock to you, if it surprises you, great. But at the end of this, we look to Jesus. At the end of this, we, we work through the ways in which we see God revealing himself through Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of a man by the name of Solomon, a man who succeeded at everything he tried to do, and yet when he looked at his life, he found that all of his success, all of his achievement, everything that he had gained was meaningless. That every opportunity he had to find meaning under the sun is the phrase here apart from God he found to be a failed attempt and left him in despair so I want to invite you as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 7 into that despair to consider the possibility if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian maybe that finding meaning and identity apart from God will leave you desperate and Ecclesiastes 7 is a reflection of the wisdom that can be found when that truth begins to take hold. So beginning in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage, an advantage to those who see the sun. 
For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither become a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out, and to seek wisdom, and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly, and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I hope that by walking through what seems like a dark and maybe even depressing text, we come to find out something about who God is and therefore who we are. What we find in this particular chapter, what we see kind of opened, us, opened up for us is this, these two things laid side by side. What God has done and then what sin has done. And, and we're meant to reflect then on what it is that we can gain from seeing how distant we are from God, how difficult it is to discern the character and nature of God. Now, I say this because one of the last, uh, the last few weeks, I guess, we've been kind of walking through this text. And over and over and over again, you'll see this man reflect on the wisdom that he's collected from his own life. And he says, life is meaningless. It's futile. It's, it's futility. No matter what you do, you won't get satisfaction. You won't get contentment. And so I, I tried to put this together for us. If you'll notice, um, I, I, got a, uh, I got a few degrees in theology, psychology, Greek, and all that good stuff. I didn't get one in graphic design, okay? Uh, but, so this is the best I, I'm sure, help me out, right? 
So I, what we've seen here is that like God represents that which is above and beyond the sun. Whenever you hear the Old Testament refer to like the heavens or, or, or something like beyond uh, our, our comprehension, you, you begin to see that we're, we're reflecting on the infinite nature of God, like the righteousness, the holiness, the matchlessness of God's character and nature. You see this over and over and over again. But the reflection of Ecclesiastes is different than any other book of the Bible. It, instead of kind of reflecting or instead of like God revealing himself to us in these words, it's the reflection of someone apart from God who's, who's really meditating on what can be found apart from God. Did you, did you catch some of the very, very personal nature, like the very personal nature to some of his comments toward the end of the chapter? You're like, we're not talking hypothetical anymore, are we? It just got real. And, he, and he's, he's talking from what seems to be a very painful yet transparent reflection. And so the, this, this, the preacher, the Ecclesiastes, this teacher, the, the gatherer here, the wise person here, Solomon, is reflecting on life under the sun. That is the nature of humanity. And through, so throughout the entirety of the Bible, we have this picture, this, this sense in which we have come from God and we go to God. And the wisdom that we find in the middle can only be found in God. Therefore, what you see is a reflection of what wisdom can be gained by knowing what life is like apart from God. So what I want you to see here is, as best as I can visually represent this, again, I don't have a graphics design degree, You've got God and his infinite nature. And, and what you see is the chasm between the nature of God that is beyond the sun is that little sideways figure eight. All you other math nerds are excited right now. Calm down, okay? Like, that's the symbol for infinity, right? There's, there's an infinite nature to the separation between us and God. There is an infiniteness to the separation between God and humanity, such that every single effort that the writer of Ecclesiastes has made to get access to that contentment, that joy, that eternal nature of contentment that he wants is a failure because he is trying to split and run across the chasm of eternity. Now, again, Google Easter, you'll see where this all plays out, right? This, this, and and we, we begin to actually reflect on this. The Old Testament tells us that, that far above, in fact, as high as the heavens are above the earth, right? the infinite nature, however you want to quantify that, whether that's a spiritual and infinite chasm or if it's like millions or billions of light years, that distance is the infinite nature, the infiniteness of the distance between God and human beings. His ways are above our ways, you'll see. And we find that this chasm ultimately cannot cannot be crossed it cannot be closed it can the gap cannot be crossed by us and we are in desperate need of an infinite an infinite solution ecclesiastes chapter 4 he reflects on this doesn't he remember he says god has placed the he has placed eternity right math nerds here you go he has placed the infiniteness of his own character into the hearts of humanity such that now no one can fully understand his ways. There is a gap that God has, has placed in us, and now that sin has entered into the story, we are infinitely separated from the matchless and holiness and perfection of God. And we are in need of a perfect and infinite solution. <clears throat> Easter, <clears throat> right? So, so this is where we're going. This is, so for us, this is the first Sunday in what Christians have referred to as the season of Lent. 
um, that they would, most Christians historically, have reflected upon the 40 days that Jesus was out in the wilderness and tempted by Satan as a, as a kind of a means to celebrate something as we prepare for Easter. Now, this is all I'll give you. I'll, give you, I'll speak out of both sides of my mouth. Every time we celebrate a holiday, we, we're very careful. Um, in the same way, remember this, if, if you only love your significant other on Valentine's Day, well, you've kind of defeated the purpose and you've kind of outed yourself. And in fact, you've kind of betrayed yourself for what you were the other 364 days of the year. And so there's a sense in which Valentine's Day, hint, hint, should be just one day in many that you love and cherish and, and shower gifts on people, right, that you love, okay? So the same is true in the life of the church. So like, we don't only celebrate the incarnation, the coming of God to cross this infinite gap on Christmas. And we don't only celebrate the victory of Christ as he walks out of the grave for your sake and for mine on Easter. This is a rhythm that is built into our very nature now. It's not something on a calendar. So that means that Christians, I would say, can borrow things from culture. They can borrow things from the culture's calendar, okay? I mean, don't be like, so Mother's Day is not in the Bible, right? But we all agree it's a bigger deal than Father's Day. And it's... Just, that actually, that's, that's biblical as well. Like you don't celebrate it the same way. Dad gets a tie or a mug. Mom, you better call, hug her, and tell her, thank you for being my mom. Like, you don't even know, okay? So, that, so like, we agree Mother's Day is not in the Bible, right? It's not there. But we would say, honoring our father and our mother, it's kind of a thing for us. That's kind of a disposition that we have. So we can borrow it from the culture. But what I would tell you over and over again, whenever the church borrows something from the culture and doesn't give it back, it's called stealing. And they've, at that point, assimilated something from the culture and called it their own. This happens all the time, okay? This, this is a big deal. This happens over and over again. There are traditions and customs of the culture, its calendar, uh, the way that it works that we borrow from. We, the church borrows, but ultimately we're supposed to give it back. Okay, and in the life of the church, this played out a couple centuries ago. People threw a fit uh, that they were going to bring a gaudy and pagan and secular instrument into the worship of the church. And you know what that, that instrument was? The pipe organ. Because that was something that the pagans had. And, and it's really ironic in the last few decades, depending on where you are in the world, they fought again. Because they were like, you're, you, you're going to build a sanctuary without a pipe organ? And people fought about this. called Google worship wars. And they were fighting over something that they borrowed from the culture. And when they wanted to keep it for themselves, that was when the fight happened. So this is what I would say about the season of Lent, okay? We're going to borrow seasons from the culture. Most of the holidays that have a, a religious kind of uh, kernel from the history of the church were borrowed from pagans. And they came along and said, for instance, Easter, Easter, I mean, it's not like the day on the calendar when Jesus walked out of the grave. Uh, it, it, it's put together with a religious calendar, and so the pagans were believing that they would worship the god of fertility in the coming of the spring when everything would turn green, um, and, and they would worship these pagan gods. And the Christians go, look, if you want to know new life, new life doesn't come in the spring from the god of fertility. New life comes when Christ walks out of the dead, right? This, and so they said, well, let's borrow this. So here's what we do here. As we prepare to think about our own, as humbly as possible, our own frailty, our own humanity, our own limitedness, we celebrate alongside other Christians this, this season of Lent. I want to push on this. If you're going to think about this, there's probably no better book to be meditating on your own frailty and your own limitedness, your own finiteness than Ecclesiastes. That being said, the point of Lent is not sacrifice. The point of Lent is Easter. 
So if at some point in the meditation upon your own sacrifice of yourself, you forget Jesus wins, careful, you might maybe want to give that back to the culture. Just saying. So one side of my mouth, let's celebrate with Christians, prepare for Easter. On the other side of my mouth, book of Galatians says, beware, you guys are still celebrating old religion, religious traditions. Beware of that. It might obscure the gospel. Now, as we reflect on the infiniteness of the chasm between us and God, the book of Ecclesiastes gives us kind of a rubric for measuring wisdom and foolishness or folly underneath the sun. So we know that by our own wisdom, we cannot cross the chasm. It is not by our own wisdom, by our own merit, by our own achievement that we can restore what is broken between us and God. But now that we reflect on the and we reflect on the infiniteness of the separation between us and God, there is a wisdom that can be gained, and what you see is the result. From chapter 4 on, specifically like chapter 7, when a, a bunch of little proverbs are piled together, some anecdotes about his own experience, I would argue, are piled together, and we're beginning to reflect on what wisdom looks like. If we know that God is infinitely separated from us, and that only God can restore us, then we begin to relate to the world a little bit different. And the reflection that we have in the book of Ecclesiastes is this, will the life of faith survive hard and troublesome times when, in this particular passage, the good old days are gone and the days of adversity have come. Because what I think we find is that we now hold on to things under the sun loosely yet wisely. We don't mail it in and quit, but we do begin to consider that a wisdom can be gained from seeing how separated we are from God. And what you find here in the whole of chapter 7 is just a reflection on like, the brokenness of humanity. And while I can't possibly cover all this, I mean, I've loved the grace that you've shown me as we've been walking through Ecclesiastes. I want to I pick out a few as we walk through this and look to hopefully see God cross that chasm on our behalf. Maybe put some of these things, measure the wisdom against the conventional wisdom of our own culture, and see what we find. And so we begin, at the very beginning here, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. And for the next few verses, he gives us a reflection. And we begin to see, first and foremost, if a good name is better than a precious ointment, that is, the nature and character of a person is better than the way they appear or smell, then we find this. The substance of a thing is greater than the surface of a thing. The, the true identity and nature of a thing has, has more value than the way that it appears. This is ought to be, I hope, like a breath of fresh air. This ought to be like a cool drink of water in our very superficial society for you. This ought to allow you to relax for just a moment, thinking about and being afraid of people's expectations and view of you, and begin to reflect on some wisdom that Solomon wants to give here. A good name, that is a reputation. The Old Testament has a, has a tradition about this, that to have a sense of pride in one's name, that when, that when you say a person's name, there ought to be something good that comes of it. And that has a greater value than the approval or acceptance of the people around you. And we see for the next few verses, the way that that's turned uh, and, and revealed for us isn't in the way that a thing starts, but in a way that a thing ends. And it's better to think about the end of a thing, even if it's death, than the beginning of a thing. So let's start there. 
If the substance of a thing is better than the surface of a thing, this ought to set us free to be as superficial as our culture wants us to be. Your reputation, what is thought of you, is more important than the way that you seem to appear. How you are truly known is greater than what people see on the surface. You don't believe me? Think of what comes to mind when you say certain names, right? When I say the word Hitler, what comes to mind? Right? When I say the word Jesus, what comes to mind? This, this is visible everywhere. When I, when I say your name, what, what do people think of? When I say the word like Trump, when I, I, you, get, you get it? When I say a prominent name, what comes to mind? And all of a sudden, you begin to realize, oh, this, there's some value in considering the true character of a person. And I bet, as I say those names... None of you thought about how that person smelled. None of you thought about how well-dressed those people might, may or may not have been. Maybe, maybe you have a mental image, okay. But what I would guess is what comes to your mind is probably more substantive than, I heard Hitler had amazing perfume. And I mean, say what you want about the guy, but he smelled good, right? Like that, that's not a thing. No one thinks that way. And overwhelmingly, and as silly as that may seem, overwhelmingly, that is the case. And that means we ought to reflect seriously about the substance of a thing rather than the superficiality of a thing. This sets us free for all sorts of cool things. These opening words in this verse have like a, a, a parallel in, in the collection of Proverbs that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, according to Proverbs 22. Loving favor rather than silver or gold. So even a good name is better than anything you could acquire for yourself or purchase for yourself. The second part of this verse, this picture of ointment or perfume, something that smells good, a precious oil, it seems to have a small and even infinitesimal value related to the character of the person. So here's what this means. Axe body spray is not a substitute for a shower. Agreed? You, you, you think, I mean, eh, it's important, write this down, this is some wisdom, tweet this, right? Like, this is, there's a, Axe body spray is not a substitute for a shower. Deodorant, even if it's like clinical strength, is not a substitute for cleanliness. It isn't. You can't cover it up. This will hurt some of you more. Caffeine is not a substitute for rest. You get that? Like, this is our thing. We, we regularly want to cover things up. This is, a, this is a thing we do. If there is a quick fix that we can have or purchase or, or get our hands on in our culture, that thing is the thing of value. That thing is the thing we want. That's the thing we want to disseminate. But we really, I think there's some wisdom here. Then we realize the substance of a thing is better than the superficial appearance or the surface of a thing. Caffeine crashes, perfume wears off, and the reality of things, especially when we think about our own human nature, is visible for all to see. It's always visible. Such that now when we begin to like, reflect upon this, we, we realize that we, as a, as a group of people, have some things to repent of. There's some things that, if there's a place where you, you like the superficial quick fix, if you like the shortcut better than actually getting to your, if you like the chance of taking a shortcut rather than actually just taking the, the known verified route, well then, then 
there might be something here in us, right? If there's, if there's a sense in which we want what's faster and better and newer, you might be missing out on here. Like, the, the essence of a thing is more important. And in fact, a good name is better than precious ointment. You can't cover it up. That being said, here's the beauty uh, that, that kind of comes with this. There is nothing better, I, would, I mean, I would, like, when the appearance of a thing is the reflection of the essence of a thing, when it's the outworking of the character of a thing, there's nothing better. Right, so, so while, while a dirty person who might smell good because they covered themselves in perfume can deceive you for a moment, there's really nothing better than when a person of sound and solid character smells good too. Such that, I'll only reflect on this myself, but like, like when my wife leaves or she's out of town and I can get my hands on something that smells like her, I mean, I'm listening to Celine Dion songs and like, weeping and like don't judge me whatever so you're like and all of a sudden even though it's superficial and it's fleeting it's connected to the essence and character of a thing so if if this is a a, an ecclesia book ecclesiastes if it's for the gathering of god's people then one of the questions i'll ask is what would it look like for us to be a group of people more concerned about the essence and the character of a thing than the appearance of the thing What if we cared less about what people think and what if we cared more about who we are and how we orient ourselves before God and before others? Because make no mistake about it, it might cost you the approval of others. In fact, if I read the New Testament right, we're guaranteed to have to sacrifice that. So he adds a layer to this. If if the essence of a thing and the character of a thing is important and greater than the, the superficial nature of a thing, then what we're left with after that, I think, is like the end of a thing is more important than the first, the first part of a thing. So much so that he says something radical, that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, this is what I meant when I said to you, there's nothing more countercultural, there's nothing more revolutionary than to actually just open the Bible and think about and believe what it says. There's nothing more radical, because you'll never hear anyone say this. You'll never hear anyone say, it is better to think about the death of a, a person rather than the birth. Every year, at a certain point, we're reminded of this. And whatever day that is for you, we celebrate the day of your birth. Now, every once in a while it gets dark, like on your 40th, you're over the hill, right, or something. But that's like one amongst how many that we actually think, oh, this is, we're one day closer to this being over. We don't like that. That, that pushes against it. That's, that's a, there's, there's, a, there's a reality to that that we push back. And we don't like that. We're averse to that. We are deeply allergic to thinking seriously that your birthday is a celebration of one year closer to death than you were the year before. And in fact, to think that way, to mourn over that, is better than to feast over a birthday. So what would it look like for us to, as the psalmist calls us to reflect, to actually think about and number our days, and to think about this? One of the things I say every single year, if, the, if we ought to think of the last day more than the first, and the ending tells us more than the beginning, every, every New Year's I try to kind of push to you uh, anything that, that is helpful, I hope, and one of the, if we're going to make New Year's resolutions, one of my favorites uh, come from a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and he wrote these, and they're extremely powerful. These resolutions, every single, every single chance he got, he would run through them, and he would add to them through the course of his life. And one, he has a couple of them that are, that are my favorites. Resolved, this is, I'm going to be resolved to, resolved to never do anything 
which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. There's many of these. There's multiple. He says, I want to be resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. If the end of the thing is greater than the beginning of the thing, if it tells us more about the essence and character of a thing, then that means that we're going to be the kind of people who reflect on how this wraps up. We saw this for the last three chapters. Death is the ultimate equalizer. No one escapes it. No one gets out of it. This pushes back so much on our culture. I, I mean, I don't even, I, this, like what is said at your funeral is more important, important than what is said at your birthday or your wedding. The end of a thing is more important than the beginning of a thing. Man, this pushes back against our culture. Our culture says over and over and over again, don't talk about death, don't think about death. In fact, if it's possible, prolong death as much as possible. If, if it's as much as you can, prolong death. Put it off. Don't think about it. It's not going to happen. Now, this is particularly important for us because we as a church in comparative nature make up a, 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 our median age is younger than the nature of many churches in America. Now, don't disparage that. The fact of the matter is that the median age of most of the churches in America is higher than it ought to be and it's on its way in decline. So this is a, a blessing, a good thing. But this means that the majority of the people in this room, you're, right now you're thinking, this doesn't apply to me. I mean, I hear you talking about death. I hear you saying it's coming to an end, but you're clearly talking about someone else. Have you met me? I'm going to live forever. I'm going to do whatever I want. This doesn't apply to me. Or maybe you're like, yeah, you're right, Jonathan. I should think about that. I'll think about that tomorrow. I'll put that off because I know for a fact I'm going to live at least the next 24 hours. And all I would say is, fine, Jonathan Edwards has some, some Ecclesiastes kind of wisdom here when he says we ought to live like we wish we would have lived in the moment when we realize we're no longer going to live. And that moment, what really matters, comes to the surface. And wisdom can be found when we contemplate this. You begin to think about what you waste your time and energy on. The end of a thing reveals more about its character than the beginning of a thing. And this is especially important if we think about, I'll just put this in here, if you think about relationships as they currently exist in our culture. Um, I love you, so here you go. Weddings are a multi-billion dollar industry because we love thinking about the beginning of a thing. But the thing we don't like to talk about is an even bigger multi-billion dollar industry, being a divorce attorney. And if you don't think that the end of a thing is more important than the beginning of a thing, tack the word divorced on it. And all of a sudden, it, it kind of gives us a, a window into the marriage that maybe we didn't have when people were throwing rice and flowers or blowing bubbles or letting off doves. You get what I mean? This is profitable. This is important. I say this because if you're putting off that, if you think, no, no, I'm, I'm going to celebrate the, like, these things as best I can, I'm going to assume that this will last forever, you're missing out on an important wisdom. The way I say this to many of you, every opportunity I get, especially if you're contemplating marriage, is this. If people invested even like a portion of what they invest into getting married, into being married, we'd be in a great spot. 
if people would invest like a port, like a, like a sliver into being married compared to what they invest into getting married, we'd be in a great spot, much better spot. And so here's what I would tell you. This is important. Like people in our culture, they want to be married in a church and buried into a church. Like they want it, they want, they want that. They don't want to be a part of revealing the character and nature of themselves on a regular basis. And as a result, we're paying the penalty. And we care more about the appearance of a thing than the substance of a thing. I say that because we've done a really good job in our culture of deceiving ourselves about this, haven't we? Saying like, no, this, this is what's important. Uh, the guest list at your wedding is more important than anything else. Um, parents have latched onto this. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, this hurts as well. Uh, if you're more, more worried about the things you do to like parent your child in the first few years thinking it's going to ruin their life, then you are worried about the sense of character and integrity you're instilling into your children. You're, you're buying into this. You're buying into this. Do not be, I know what the commercials say. Like, if you love your child, you'll buy this thing, right? I get, I get it. I get it. But what I can tell you is the beginning isn't as important as the end. And so even as parents, as friends, we love people enough to think about the implications of these things in the end. As dark as that may be, what I want you to see is that, like, if we're not going to think about this, then we're, we're going to be subject to the wisdom and folly that he points to in the next 10 verses. The fact of the matter is that a foolish life is an unexamined life. So when he talks about the end of all these things, verse 2 he says that the living people will lay it to heart. It will lay it to heart. We'll think about the end of a thing and we'll start to invest in things accordingly. It says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness the face of the heart is made glad. Again, here's where, here's where we're, we're pushing back and doing some, something revolutionary in our culture to really think about the weight of things, even if it brings us to sadness, is a better thing than to distract ourselves from something that seems to give us joy. We'll invest our entire lives in like buying trinkets and gadgets thinking that ultimately they will satisfy us, we'll, we'll pour ourselves into these kinds of things, and we won't really think about the end. But that is foolishness. That is going to lead us down a road that Ecclesiastes tells us from the wisdom of a man who got everything he wants, it will leave in despair. It will leave you in a sense of hopelessness. So friend, think about how we examine our lives. How do we value things? Contemplate the, life, the way that life really is. Proverbs 5 says it this way, we do not ponder the path of our lives, then we will wonder and we will not know it. He, the preacher here contradicts the prevailing pursuit of mo momentary pleasure, doesn't he? To say that I know what you think will make you happy now won't actually help you in the long run. It may end up in a landfill somewhere in the next hundred years or it may just serve as what i think is the one of the most powerful things and there's at least two dynamics of it in our current culture and that is distraction the primary means by which we resist contemplating the words here are laying this depth to our own hearts the the primary means by which we avoid it in our current culture is distraction Distraction. And we'll either distract ourselves with lament and sorrow, or we'll distract ourselves with pleasure. 
this is incredibly important that will seem to happen. I think I've seen this. Like many of you, if you're a darker kind of a person, if you're more melancholy than the rest, be careful. Some, many, choose lament as the way to cope with life rather than to regard it rightly according to its season. There seems to be a moment here to to consider the weight of things, but if ultimately your depression doesn't lead to gladness, you might be mourning wrongly. You might be considering your own sorrow in in a way that might be more self-absorbed than you're willing to admit, and you might be missing on, apparently, a gladness that comes in verse 3. By the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. By weighing out the thing and enjoying it for what it's worth, we experience gratitude, thanksgiving, and we we deal a death blow to the worst thing in our own culture, which is entitlement. We consider the end of the thing. The second kind of distraction, I would say, is the distraction of happiness. The distraction of joy, or the word here we see is mirth. I don't use that word a lot. I don't know if you do, but it simply means amusement. Laughter, or kind of joviality. This, this sense in which like, you're not taking things seriously and you're laughing at something. So the first distraction may be sorrow, but the second distraction is typically joy. And not the kind of joy that comes from God, but the kind of happiness that comes from being distracted from reality. I say that because one of the ways we do this, the worst, is this. Uh, if you're holding a smartphone, you are holding in your hand, I would say, the, the primary means by, we, which, by which we distract ourselves from a contemplative life. Right? You feel the, you feel the, you feel the pull of it. Like, oh, I can't. I can't go without looking at it. It just kind of grabs you. That's fine, but foolishness results from having an unexamined life and thinking critically about the things that might distract us from weighing and laying these things to heart. You see, it's not that it's better to be sad. It's better just simply to learn about life from the sadness. It's not that it's better to be happy. It's simply that we gain wisdom from learning about life and how the happiness and sadness come and go. I say that because this has crushed our ability to to focus on anything, to meditate on anything. Most of what the Bible expects of us is almost impossible because our our own attention span has been closed off. So he walks through this. We see there's there's an oppression that causes madness. There's an end of a thing that ought to be, hopefully, indicative of our sense of value and character. And it's more important to think about the end of the thing than the beginning of the thing. So that, verse 10, he says, now that you think about this, he says, don't be quick in your spirit in verse 9 to, to get anger, to, to get angry. Um, and, and he weighs these things together. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not wisdom that you ask this. Side note here, on a regular basis, I say something like, there's no such thing as a bad question, right? Have you ever heard me say this? What I mean to say when I say that is that like in the, in the process of learning about the scripture and learning about who Christ is, being shaped by the gospel, it, we're not going to like laugh at you if you ask a question that you think everyone else already knows the answer to. That's what I mean when I say there is no bad question. What I find to be true here is I'm corrected on this. There actually is a stupid question. The phrase, there's no such thing as a stupid question, he debunks quite graciously and humbly. Did you catch that? Don't ask, why were the good old days better than these? That's not from wisdom that you ask this. That's a stupid question. I say that because there is a wisdom that comes in realizing that there wasn't a good old days. The brokenness of humanity existed since it started. 
The first story in the Bible tells us that they had one job, they couldn't do it. This is the nature of humanity separated infinitely from God. And so to say, why can't we go back to the good old days? That's a problem. That's not wisdom that brings it there. You had better have something under the surface of that if you're going to lead people in a way of progress. That's particularly important, particularly important for us because it is our nature to always want to kind of go back to the good old days, isn't it? I could be wrong, but have you ever heard anybody say how bad they were in high school? Like, have you ever heard one, like, did, have, you, have you ever got any friends that you get around together and they just reminisce on how terrible they were at a sport in high school? You ever seen this? Because it doesn't happen. The older you get, the better you were, the more likely you are to think that you're even better than you actually were. And you'll sit and reminisce about the good old days. It's fairly important because this is something we kind of build into our culture. We, we begin to, instead of thinking about the end of the thing, we invest in the beginning of the thing and, and we lie to ourselves. Don't, don't wish you had the good old days because that might deceive you in leading other people. So just contemplate the future and the end of the things, not what it used to be like. This means that for us parents, this is going to be tough for us, but like, okay, I'm not saying little Johnny can't be a pro quarterback, right? Maybe he will be. I don't know, okay? But right now he's five, all right? So let's just assume that the end of the thing is the odds are probably not, and let's equip him to have a sense of character and substance that goes beyond, let's say, just how good he might be. And our ability or our, our inability to see maybe our own flaws in the past and want the good old days might deceive us and in effect deceive others and tell them to live out their good old days. You don't believe me? Uh, ask someone about a student loan, right? Really easy to start, uh, but somebody probably should ask, hey, where's this going to end? Like, what are you going to do with this degree? Could be wrong. 2008, our entire economy crashed because of this because banks and buyers both wanted to own a home but didn't think seriously about how they would afford and pay for a home you get this this is a cycle so whenever you start to think the good old days used to be better be careful this is a thing we do this on a regular basis we deceive ourselves about the beginning and deceive ourselves about the end that's foolishness wisdom leads us to think about the future of a thing and the end of a thing and not just the beginning that means that, if, if I read this right, an empty heart will only go so long before finding something to fill it. Because the second half of chapter 17 or 7 gets dark, doesn't it? I don't know if you caught some of the personal references. It just got real. Have you, have you ever had someone like say hypothetically, like, hey, I've got a friend and, uh, and he, um, you know, he, he, you know he's, he has a problem with alcohol. He's my friend. You know, what should I tell my friend? And then there's this moment where you see through it and you're like, we're not talking about someone else, are we? This just got real. And he reflects upon the ways that he has pursued joy and found vanity in them. Even to the point where he reflects upon the wisdom, the righteousness, and then relationships. And he lands the plane on reflecting on his own relationships. So let's just walk through those three things and we'll wrap up. It says that in my vain life, again, catch the, like, the personal nature of this in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So even when you find yourself saying, how can there be a God because things are so awful, you're not asking a new question. This, in fact, is a question that was already been asked. He said, have you ever noticed that people who do great things don't always end up in the right spot? And the people who tend to 
rob, steal, and manipulate end up living long, prosperous lives. So therefore, what he says is, then, be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? He, he gives us a pretty powerful litmus test here that I, I would just kind of like relay to you. If I say to you, be not overly righteous, uh, probably in this room, that'll hit you one of two ways. Half of you are like, yes, exactly. Let's go do some terrible things. Let's make some bad decisions, right? Okay, we'll get to this. He isn't saying let's sin. He, he's going to get to you secondly, but... But the other half of you might, if, if, we're, if we're right about this, we're kind of pushed in onto this. He's not referring to a sense of like, don't do, don't do bad. He's not saying like, don't do good things, only do bad things. He's simply saying like, if your identity and your pursuit is to be righteous, you have missed out. And in fact, what results is what we would find in the rest of the Bible as self-righteousness. So when I talk about sin, if you think about someone else, it should be a red flag. In fact, if I ask you, if I say, who in your life is self-righteous? If you think of anyone other than you, you're self-righteous. That's how it works. If you think other people need help more than you, be careful. He says, there is not a righteous man who does everything well. Our own separation from God is by our own merit, by our own sinfulness. And I would just say, like, if, if you find yourself thinking, no, I'm going to do better, I'm going to be better at this, beware, be not overly righteous. You think you're gaining identity by what you know and what you've accomplished, but in the end, you are destroying yourself. Now, for the rest of you, that doesn't mean that we have license to sin and make bad, foolish decisions. He says, so be not overly wicked either. If you resolve to say, I cannot possibly be righteous, and then you just say, well, I'll just do stupid things, then he says, don't be a fool. You're going to kill yourself before it's your time. Right? This is for some of you who, are, who may, if you, take, if you take large gambles with your life and with your health, this is for you. Okay? You're not going to live forever. You're going to pay for this. It will kill you. Think about the end while you're doing this. But as a result, we have this kind of strange dichotomy, don't we? If you can't achieve righteousness on your own and... Evidently, you're not supposed to pursue foolishness and sinfulness. We're left at an impasse, aren't we? In fact, I would say we're left at like a massive gap. We're left in a place where we need a solution. He further illustrates that gap by turning then to his last little bit. Did you, did you catch this very, very deep and dark reflection upon relationships? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek out wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness and fo folly of, and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Now, this is pretty real, isn't it? Remember, this is a guy who had 700 wives and 300 mistresses. So when he tells us a story about a woman, particularly in this case, a type of woman, we take his word for it. This man is clearly, by all rights, a womanizer, okay? We would say his view of women, somewhat problematic. That's all I'm going to say. But he reflects on something here, doesn't he? He says that there's something going on that I see in brokenness, and the way that it plays out isn't just in oppression, it isn't just in self-righteousness and sinfulness, it's even in relationships. 
It's even the ways that people foolishly and sinfully relate to one another. He says there's a type of person that ultimately, by their own depravity, has given up on love and then has resorted to simply snaring people. He, tells a pic- he t- paints a picture of a woman, a woman that's quit on love, and now she only craves attention. And she uses, we don't know here, maybe it's her body, her words, her, we don't know. He, she uses something to get the notice and set a trap for a person. If you want to see the brokenness of humanity and the sinfulness of humanity, watch the way that people relate to one another, particularly the way that men and women relate to one another. Because this easily could be said about a man. If a woman had written this, we could say the same thing, right? A person who uses certain tactics to get someone's attention, eager to trap them, maybe get them at the beginning of a relationship, throw some money into that multi-billion dollar wedding industry, but ultimately has no desire for love, care, but instead they have given up on love and self-sacrifice and commitment and resolved to consuming one another. And they want to use one another rather than love and care for one another. Friend, they chase the wind in the name of intimacy or companionship. And they say, let's use one another. Let's not make any commitments or make any demands to honor one another, to sacrifice for one another, to love selflessly. Let's just take what we can get now because it's easier. Such that now, the brokenness that he seems to be reflecting on that hits a real part, doesn't it? It leaves us in our culture to where I would say this. We now, in our culture, hardly know what it looks like to be looked at or touched by a person of the opposite sex without immediately assuming that they're using us with their eyes or they're gaming us with their words and their motive. The brokenness and the infinite nature of our separation from God is so profound that I think one of the places you see this the most poignantly is the way that men and women relate to one another. To where now you, you can't relate to a person in our culture of the opposite sex without at some point being either accused of or at least giving the impression that you're using them. And so there's two people here. There's a person who uses people to get their attention and there's the sinner, it says, the person who takes it. Friend, whatever the case may be, what I can say is as we reflect on the brokenness of this life, the fallenness of our nature, I want to point you toward a possible solution. And I want you to begin to think, if this is the way that things are, if these are the way that things really work, if brokenness prevails, if the relationships that are now visible around us point to the brokenness and fallenness of our nature, I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Right after explaining how the the consummation of the reconciliation in Christ is in a relationship with a man and a woman at the beginning of this. But he says, so then, be careful how you live. Now, hear the words of Ecclesiastes, right? Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Hear that? Think about, think about how many opportunities you have left. Think about them, leverage them, use them for God's glory. Because the days are ultimately, in a fallen, broken, sinful world, evil. Therefore, then, do not be foolish, But then instead, understand 
what the Lord's will is. Remember what I told you that people who are restless and seeking and are hunger, hungry for something, they'll find it somewhere? He gives a, a, a pertinent example that's still, I would say, still relevant for our culture. He says, so then, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have good news. I have good news for you. The brokenness that exists that separates us from God, the brokenness in our own sinfulness that leaves us in a lost and dying world, a culture that wants to tease us and rob us and trap us into something, has been overcome. The brokenness that exists is meant to be a reminder and it's to call our attention that the infinite gap that separates us from God has been closed and filled by Jesus Christ. The chasm that has existed between us and God because of our own sinfulness. The, the brokenness and sinfulness that we can see in relationships, we can see it in oppression, we can see it in the way that we're superficial and care more about the beginning of a thing than the end of a thing. Uh, the superficiality that allows us to ultimately distract ourselves from deep and substantive truth has not gone unnoticed, has not been ignored, but instead God, being rich in mercy, has crossed that infinite gap in Jesus Christ such that now what remains for us is to celebrate, sing about, and declare that this brokenness and the wisdom that we can now learn from it is ultimately and fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Such that now we do something radical. Did you catch that? In the midst of broken, a broken world where relationships and structures are broken, what do we do? We speak to one another with psalms, with hymns, and songs from the Spirit, so much so that, as we've seen the last verse there, we sing and make music in our heart to the Lord. Do you see how countercultural this is? Do you see how radical it is to begin to think that Christ has closed the gap, such that now, here's what I want to reflect on and ask us to do. If you're in a spot where maybe the depravity and brokenness of the world seems pretty evident, maybe, I don't know what your week has been like, I know mine, maybe it's just because I've been in this text, but just the burdens of life kind of weigh heavy, and you're like, yeah, this is a busted world. There is something we do that's radical in nature. And every time we get together, we turn away from that brokenness, and we declare, even in song, how good and merciful God has been to us. We declare in songs and spiritual songs and, and, and psalms and hymns how gracious God has been to us. So here's what I would ask you. Would you consider the possibility that the brokenness that in, exists in this world is not the end of the story and that the infinite separation that leaves us in despair has been closed? That gap has been closed by Jesus Christ. And for us to even look upon him, to declare his name, there is new life and there is joy forever and ever, even amidst a broken and fallen world. Let's pray together for that. God, we thank you for your mercy upon us. We thank you for the generosity that you have displayed for us. We can look at the cross and know that you have not abandoned us or left us, but instead, while we were dead and separated from you by our trespasses, you sent your son to die to take our place. God, as we reflect upon the brokenness, we reflect upon our own sinfulness, we 
who reflect upon the, the fallenness of this world, uh, we're full of despair. Now I ask that you would do something that only you could do. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says that this kind of despair will lead us to a gladness of heart if we lay it to our own hearts. So would you do something mysterious and miraculous? As we contemplate our own brokenness, as we contemplate our own limitedness, as we contemplate our own sinfulness, will you take that despair and do what only you can do by the power of Jesus, turn it into gladness? That thanks be to God, despite what we bring to the table, despite the sin and separation we experience, we have joy and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Fulfill for us in Jesus what the writer of Ecclesiastes says can only happen by the grace of God. Bring gladness, gladness where there once was sorrow. May we look to you to trust you that you grant a greater and more eternal gladness than anything we could muster up for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.